looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. You drive me wild. <laughs> what up, Crazy Train Radio? You look like hell. And I could look the same. What's the photo for? You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Truth, 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 I'm one crazy nerf Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any of the films. All orders are made specifically. Your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. Hey, how you doing out there? This is Gary K. Wolf. I'm broadcasting from somewhere in the middle of Toontown, and I'm on Crazy Train Radio. And I gotta tell you, it's crazier. Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc. Jonathan Steele. 
boy do we have a good one for you today. So ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, and even the big kids in the room as we speak, I am actually thrilled to be chatting with this gentleman. And I wasn't sure what I was going to be getting into, but he was nice enough to be a part of a Q&A of our birthday watch along for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And this man is, and I thought of the uh, line from Toby Keith, Who's Your Daddy? Who's your daddy? Who's your baby? Who's your buddy? Who's your man? But in this case, he'd be Roger's daddy <laughs> in Roger Rabbit. He has been a writer of sci-fi novels and obviously created Roger with his fourth book. So let's go ahead and welcome Mr. Gary K. Wolf. Gary, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I, it's sometimes the, the paternity of, of Roger and Jessica is a little cloudy. Sometimes I wonder if I'm their father or their my father, but uh, either way, I guess we're all family, so works out. I am your father. Well, I won't use the line, it's better to go down the hall than down the street, but that's a whole nother... Uh... <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole nother section of Toontown there, I don't know. <laughs> that's the adult section of Toontown that we won't... To alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. Based on a conversation I had earlier, but we'll leave that as it may. So, obviously, you are a guy who grew up in a small farm town dad owned a pool hall mom worked in a cafeteria yes yes so did you ever think that a kid from a small town with blue collar folks would end up where you're at today oh never never in my wildest dreams i mean i i now here i am i'm I'm right now i'm wearing a i'm wearing a t-shirt with Jessica Rabbit on it. I, I mean, that is a character that I created. I have a Roger Rabbit, life-size Roger Rabbit doll in my office standing right behind me. Um, I I walk down the street sometimes and I see people wearing T-shirts, caps, jackets with my characters on them. And I, I don't just see that in the United States. I've seen that in France, Germany, even China. And uh, to th- to think that I am the one that's responsible for that, that's just, that's just mind-boggling to me. And, and uh, uh, when, I was, when I was a kid, I really didn't know where things like that came from. I, I didn't know that there were people who wrote books and who wrote movies and who created characters. I guess, uh, you know, being a farm town kid, um, I just thought those things kind of sprang magically into existence somehow. I had no idea. And uh, if I had known then that years later uh, that would be me, I I would have been I would have been dumbfounded. And it probably just as well that I didn't know because I think if you know if you could take a peek into the future and see what your future holds for you, um, 
I think you you would you would approach your life with a lot more trepidation. Uh, if I knew that at one point I was going to write a book that was going to become a movie and win four Academy Awards, and then I would write uh, three more books in the series, and now I would I would have other books picked up for movies. If I had known that when I was a kid, I think I would have questioned every single thing I did. Uh, I would have said, oh my gosh, if I do this, is this going to be something that eventually results in what I know is going to happen to me? I think you're better off not knowing and just kind of going with it and, and letting it happen. With me, I'm lucky. It happened in a, in a good way, in a big way. Well, so should we, and I know your story a tiny bit because I've been doing research for this, <laughs> but also something you mentioned during the Q&A portion mm -hmm. and that being should we give credit or also blame your mom <laughs> for saying because she was the one that told you hey if you want to do bigger and better things oh, no, and what we got going here no, you should read of all people in my life that I could blame my mom is uh way, way, way down at the bottom of the list. She's not even on the list. No, uh, I, owe, I owe almost everything I am to my parents who were good parents. And I'll tell you how it all got started. Um, I, I was in the second or third grade and uh, our teacher gave us, uh, everybody in the class, a picture to color. And this, this was a picture, a typical farm scene. It was a, uh, a barn, a house, uh, a field, a fence, and, and one cow out alone in the middle of the field. And you, you had to take this picture home and color it with your crayons. And the whole object of the exercise was to stay inside the lines. Uh, so I took this picture home that night. And, uh, I mean, nobody stays inside the lines better than I did. So I knew I was going to really ace this, this assignment. And, I, and I'm looking at that that picture. And so I colored the barn red and I colored the farmhouse yellow because that's the color farmhouses were. And in my town, um, I colored the grass green, of course, the fence brown. And I get to the cow and there's this cow all alone out in the middle of this field. And I felt really sorry for the cow. And my, my mother had told me that when people were all alone, that they got sad, they got lonely, and they got blue. And so I said, you know, sad, lonely cow. I colored the cow blue. And I, I turned, turned my picture in the next day. Uh, so the day after that, uh, the teacher passed them all back, all except for mine. And, I, and she said to me, she said, Gary, you come up here to the front of the, front of the class and face the class. And I, and I thought, oh my gosh, I stayed inside the lines better than anybody. And so the teacher took my picture and put it up over my head. And she said, class, she said, look at this stupid, stupid picture. She said, everybody knows that cows are black, cows are brown, cows are white. Sometimes cows are brown, black, and white, all three. But never, never, ever are cows blue. That, that just never happens. She said, Gary, don't you ever do that again. And so she called my mother. And my mother had to go to school, which is a big deal for my mother. And the teacher said, I think there's something wrong with Gary. He's, he's coloring cows blue. Now, maybe he's colorblind or maybe he needs some psychological help, but he shouldn't be doing that. And so that night, my mother and my father called me into the living room and sat me down and 
you know, they said to me, they said, yeah, Gary, what, why did you color that cow blue? And I, I said, well, my, you know, it wasn't me. It was really, it was you. You were the one who told me about people being alone. They got sad. They got lonely. They got blue. So I figured, you know, if it works for people, it must work for cows. So I colored the cow blue, sad, lonely cow. So my mom says, Gary, you go outside and play for a while. Your dad and I are going to talk about this. So I went outside. Like I, like, like you said, my, my my dad and my mom were working people. My dad ran the pool hall. My mother worked in the school cafeteria. My my dad had to drop out of school in the third grade to go to work during the depression. My mom had to drop out of school in the eighth grade to go to school to go to go to work during the depression. So these these were not what you would call upscale, well educated urban liberals. I mean, these were these were working working people and. I didn't think this was going to have a very happy ending for me, but uh, about 20 minutes later, my mom called me back in and she said, Gary, she said, your dad and I talked about this and we decided that the next time you want to color a cow blue, you go ahead and color a cow blue. And she called my teacher and she said, next time he wants to do that, let him. It's okay with us. It's let him. There's nothing wrong with it. So about a week later, we got another assignment and this one was to, um, was to write what we did on our summer vacation. And uh, all the kids, this was in Illinois, so all the kids wrote, oh, we went up to Wisconsin, or, you know, we took a fishing trip to Minnesota, or we went to Chicago to the to the museum. Uh, and on my paper, I wrote how I went out into my backyard and I used tin foil and uh, tin cans and string and rubber bands and built a rocket ship and flew to the moon. And I, and then next day, my teacher gave me back my paper and said, well, Gary, that must have been a very interesting trip. And I said, yes, it was. So, uh, you know, that was really the first validation I ever had of my creativity. Uh, and, you know, I've gone ahead and colored a lot of cows blue since then. But uh, without my mother and my father giving me that support, uh, who knows what would have happened. Uh, my, my mother got me going, and, and my father too, got me going in another direction that changed my life. My mother uh, told me, she said, Gary, you know, you know, if I can give you one piece of advice, one thing that you can do to make sure that you don't wind up staying in this town and running your father's pool hall, the one thing I can, I can tell you to do is to read read whatever you can, just read, and that will get you out of this town. And, uh, you know, good mother that she was, she didn't put any restrictions on what I read. So, I mean, what did I read? Well, I read what kids read. I read comic books. I, I, I read every comic book uh, I, I could buy with my allowance. Uh, there was a smoke shop on the way home from school. I would stop at the smoke shop and I'd read all the comics that I could read before uh, Andy, the guy who owned it, kicked me out. And then uh, I'd, I'd get the comics that I had bought with my allowance and I'd trade them with friends at school. And uh, I, I read comic books and I watched cartoons. We had a, we had a local movie theater. I, I went, uh, they changed the, changed the, uh, the shows uh, four times a week. I went to every show every week and I mostly went to watch the cartoons. I loved, I loved cartoons. Um, so I, th that was, that was one thing, you know, comic books and cartoons. And the other thing was my dad, uh, wasn't a big reader. 
Uh, but what he read were what they call true crime magazines. And I, I don't know if those exist anymore. Uh, I certainly hope not, but what they were were um, magazines that featured real crimes, uh, almost always murders. And uh, to do these stories, uh, the uh, photographer would be on the police band radio and would pick up news of a murder and would go to the murder scene and sometimes get there before the police and would take pictures of the dead bodies and sometimes would rearrange the dead bodies to make the pictures more photogenic. Um, and then some writer would come and write a story about it, sometimes true, sometimes uh, not so true. And they would publish it as a true crime magazine uh, article. And if you saw a movie called Road to Perdition with Tom Hanks years ago, uh, Jude Law played a photographer who did exactly that. It was based on a real guy named Ouija, uh, who was one of these kind of photographers. But anyway, I read those. And um, my mom my mom never once said, hey, Gary, don't read those that rot your brain. As long as I read, she was fine with it. Uh, and, you know, luckily, I transitioned from uh, gra graphic articles about real murders to better quality writing and better quality writers, uh, Dashiell Hammett, uh, uh, Raymond Chandler, uh, Mickey Spillane, uh, noir, noir mystery writers. And so I had the three things that I really loved when I was a kid, when I was growing up were cartoons, comic books, and uh, noir mysteries. And uh, of course, all three of those are Roger Rabbit. Well, when did you realize that you can mix all these things together? Oh, that, well, that was uh, that was an, another uh, milestone for me. Um, I I was writing short stories, and I had written I don't know hundred short stories or so, and I was sending them off to science fiction magazines. They were all science fiction genre, and um, there were plenty of outlets for that in 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 my day. There's not so many now, but back then you could you could send them to science fiction magazines, Playboy. Uh, uh, Esquire, a lot of a lot of magazines printed science fiction, and I I wrote those kinds of stories, and then I realized that I could uh, I could write instead of writing twelve short stories, I could write a novel, and uh, so I wrote a novel and uh, sent it off to Doubleday, and Doubleday said, "Yeah, we love this novel, and uh, we'll publish it." It was a novel called Killer Bowl about football played in the future as a blood sport where they play it with uh, weapons and uh, kind of anticipated mixed martial arts. Um, and um, so they said, yeah, we'll, we'll publish this and uh, we'll also give you a contract for three more. Well, write whatever you want. We'll publish it. We really like your writing. So uh, I published uh, Killer Bowl and then I published a novel called uh, Generation Removed. Uh, then I published a novel called The Resurrectionist. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I was kind of amazed because being, being a writer uh, kind of was a lot easier than I ever thought it would be because I had never gotten a reject. I mean, no, never had a rejects notice, never had a reject slip, and everybody was in love with my writing and they were publishing whatever I wrote. So for the, for the fourth novel of my double day contract, I wanted to 
I wanted to go beyond the bounds of traditional science fiction. I wanted to do something that nobody had ever done before uh, and something I'd never done before. I, I wanted to somehow incorporate the loves of my life, cartoons, comic books, and noir mysteries, uh, privatized, hardball privatized. So I was trying to figure out a way to interrelate those concepts. And uh, so I was watching uh, Saturday morning cartoons one Saturday morning. And, I, you know, my wife came in and I said, oh, I'm just research. You know, I'm doing my research here. I'm not, not enjoying this at all. And uh, uh, the cartoons themselves were uh, pretty simple and not too funny compared to what I remembered from my day, uh, you know, Bugs Bunny, Porky Pig, Woody Woodpecker, Tex Avery kind of stuff. But I got to be fascinated by the commercials because the commercials showed cartoon characters, uh, the Trix Rabbit, Tony the Tiger, uh, Snap, Crackle, and Pop, Captain Crunch. We showed cartoon characters talking to real kids, and nobody seemed to think that was odd. And I, that, that gave me the idea. I said, what would happen if you had a world where cartoon characters were real? What kind of a world would that be where cartoon characters coexisted with human beings? So I spent a year just researching the kinds of things that cartoon characters did that would be funny if they did it in a real world environment. And um, um, of course, some of those things in, in the original novel, Who Censored Roger Rabbit, which which was the basis for who framed Roger Rabbit. In the original novel, the cartoon characters talk in word balloons. They don't actually talk in speech. They can, but they prefer to talk in word balloons because it's easier. And so they will put up a word balloon that says something and you don't actually talk to them, you read them. And if they turn around, their word balloon turns around because it's kind of attached to them. Um, and, and so you either have to go around to their other side or learn to read backwards. And um, if somebody's killed with a tune gun, uh, the tune gun creates a bang balloon. And uh, bang balloons are kind of fragile. They, they'll fall. And if they land wrong, they'll, they'll, they'll break on the sidewalk. Um, but if they don't break, you can take the bang balloon. And then when you find a gun that you think was a murder weapon, you fire it and produce another bang balloon. And if the two bang balloons match, that's the murder weapon. Uh, when somebody plays a piano, the, the notes from the piano go drifting off and people will collect those, those notes and cut them into eight by 12 sheets. And that's where sheet music comes from. So and I had a lot of fun playing with the conventions of cartoons in a real world. Uh, I came up with a detective named him Eddie Valiant. After my dad, my dad's name was Eddie. It was my homage to my dad for uh, introducing me to uh, crime fiction and um, came up with, a, with a, a murder mystery that could not exist in any world where cartoon characters weren't real and did the novel. And, you know, quite frankly, it was a brilliant novel. It was the best thing I'd ever written, maybe the best thing I'll ever write. Uh, so I finished it. Uh, it took me a year to write it and I sent it to Doubleday and, uh, you know, the fourth novel of my four novel deal. Uh, so I waited a couple of weeks later, I get a you know, letter from my, actually a call from my editors. Um, and uh, she said, uh, I'm sorry, Gary, we, we, we've rejected your novel. And I, 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 was, I was dumbfounded. I said, you know, 
why did you reject this? This is the best thing I've ever written. And she said, oh, I agree. She says, it's funny. It's clever. Uh, never been anything like it before. I, I mean, none of us have ever seen anything like this. And that's the problem. It's so different from anything you've ever written before. Uh, so different from anything that anybody's ever written before that um, I had to send it over to the marketing department and they were the ones who rejected it. So I called the head of the marketing department. I said, Charlie, why, you know, why did you reject my novel? And he said, well, he said, we all really thought it was funny, but he says, there's no category for it on the bookstore shelves. He said, it's not a, it, it's not a regular science fiction novel. It's not a regular adult novel. It's not a children's book. It's not a fantasy novel. It, it, there's no category for it on the bookstore shelves. I can't sell this book. And I said, okay, what would you do if somebody today gave you Alice in Wonderland or The Wizard of Oz or um, Gulliver's Travels? What would you do with those? And he thought for a minute and he said, I couldn't sell those either. So I, I, I went to my agent uh, who had gotten me all, this, all these deals and said, Bill, you, you know, if, if I can't sell this book, if I can't get this book printed, I don't want to be a writer anymore because this is what I want to do. And if I can't do it, I, I, it's not worth me doing anything. And he said, no, 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 don't worry. He said, we'll find a hope for it. It's a brilliant novel. We'll find a hope for it. So we started sending it out to other publishers, sometimes uh, different editors of the same publisher because they had different interests. And uh, along the road, uh, along the way, Roger Rabbit got 110 rejects. He rejected 110 times. Uh, in those days, rejects, I don't get many rejects, but even now, but in those days, I guess now they come by email, but in those days, they came by letter. And my wife used to call my trip out to the mailbox every night, the daily disappointments, because I'd come back with one, two, three, four, five rejects on Roger Rabbit. And, um, um, you know, this went on for a couple of months until finally the book crossed the desk of a woman named Rebecca Martin, who was an editor at St. Martin's Press. And um, Rebecca had just edited a big bestseller for St. Martin's Press. So the president of the company gave her a vanity project. He said, look, he said, for your next project, you can publish whatever book you want, you know, Anything you want to publish, I'll publish it for you. And just then Roger Rabbit came across her desk and she read it. She loved it. Like all editors, all the editors that have been sent to loved it. It was always the marketing department that said, we can't sell this. But uh, so she, she said, oh, this is it. So she went to the president of St. Martin's and said, this is the book I want to publish. And he said, okay, I'll read it tonight and I'll get back to you in the morning. So he got back to her in the morning, called her in his office, said, Rebecca, I told you you could publish anything you wanted, but you can't publish this because I can't sell it. And Rebecca stepped up to the plate and said, look, publish that book or I quit. And so they published the book, um, albeit in very, very small quantities, uh, less than 5,000 copies, which is, I mean, it's, it's just nothing for a, for a book. It was, it's nothing for a book today. It was next to nothing for a book back then. And, um, Interesting, interesting thought. That book back then uh, sold for two ninety nine, two dollars and ninety nine cents, 
And uh, today, if you can find one on eBay uh, in good condition, it's north of $400. So um, my, my one regret as a writer is that I didn't buy up all 5,000 copies uh, back in 1981 when it came out and uh, put them in a barn somewhere so I could have them for sale today. I'll be a very wealthy man. Um, but anyway, it, it, um, it, it eventually came out. Uh, I sold it in 1980, took a year for them to, uh, to put it together for, uh, for printing and it came out in 1981. Yeah. Now I'd be curious to know, and I'm not sure somebody would ask you this. Now, obviously that would have been book four of your four book contract with yeah. Double Day. Mm-hmm. So Obviously, it was published by St. Martin's. So mm-hmm. whatever happened with the fourth book of the four deal or four contracts? Oh, that was that was it. Uh, they rejected it. Um, they magnanimously let me keep the advance, which uh, wasn't much. Uh, but that was the end of the deal. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah no, wasn't- They didn't say, all right, we wanted a, another fourth book. No, that was it. And okay. I'm not so sure I would have given them one anyway. Right on. Now, the funny thing I heard earlier today, which is getting a ball rolling for the movie and such when the book came out, mm-hmm. and I would be, you didn't say it this way, but I'll say it. Roy Disney calls you at home and says, hey, I'd like to maybe do something, put the movie together and this, that, mm-hmm. and the other, based on your book. Mm-hmm. I would be knowing who Roy Disney is, I would be like, you are so full of shit. You know, like, you know, like you're ribbing me. You're, you know what I mean? That'd be- That's pretty much what happened. I mean, I got a call at home and um, my home number, which uh, wasn't unlisted, but it wasn't certainly easy to come by. And uh, the guy on the other end says, is this Gary K. Wolf? I said, yeah. He says, this is Roy Disney. From the Disney Corporation, I said, "Yeah, right. <laughs> Who is this really? You know, one of my friends having me on." And exactly. Said, oh, it's really Roy Disney, and he said, uh, "I'm. I, I just read your new book, Who Censored Roger Rabbit, and I'm wondering if you'd be interested in letting Disney make it into a movie." And I said, "Yeah, right. The book hasn't even come out yet because this was mid 1980, and the book uh, I sold the book in 1980, but it didn't come out until 81, so." It hadn't come out yet, and he said he'd read it. Well, it turns out that somebody at St. Martin's uh, thought that this was the perfect book for Disney and sent him a copy, sent Disney a copy of the manuscript. And I never found out who. Uh, I, I tried for years to find out who did that uh, because I wanted to kiss her or him full on the lips, uh, but I never found out who did it. And uh, it turned out that they read the manuscript and they, they were interested in, in this. So they were very interested. And the, the, it made a lot of sense for them at the time. This was 1980. Uh, Disney was not the powerhouse that they've since become. And I, they've become that powerhouse largely as a result of Roger Rabbit and the events that happened after that. But in, in those days, they were not. They, they were making, they were making uh, inexpensive movies that were meant to be the second half of double features. And uh, theaters were doing away with double features. So their, their second half of double features were not going to play anywhere. Nobody was going to play them. Uh, they, they were making movies like The Nutty Professor and uh, uh, Herbie and uh, uh, 
the, the black hole and the black cauldron which disappeared down the black hole. Um, their, their movies, frankly, were not very good. They weren't technically interesting. Their stories were kind of mediocre. And they were in danger of becoming a, a second-rate production house or maybe going out of business altogether. So they needed something that would leapfrog them back into the forefront of movie produ production companies. Uh, they'd been offered Star Wars and they turned it down. They'd been offered E.T. and they turned it down. Um, so they didn't want to make that mistake again. And um, they felt that this was the movie they had to make in order to uh, get, get back to the status that they felt the, they deserved. They, they also had another another reason. They, they had, I don't know if you've noticed, but when you walk down sidewalks anywhere in the world, you see a lot of people wearing T-shirts, uh, caps, um, clothing, whatever, with uh, Walt Disney characters on them, right? They make a tremendous... You're bound to see it. Yeah, they make a tremendous amount of money selling merchandise with their characters on it. And back in 1980, their characters got a little stale. They, they had Mickey Mouse, uh, but he had kind of become their corporate spokesman, and they couldn't really have fun with him anymore. They had Donald Duck. Uh, you know, they could have fun with him, but he, you know, they couldn't understand what he said. So um, he was kind of off the boards. And, and they saw they saw Roger and, and the, the Toontown characters as being a source of merchandise, a, a, a revenue stream for them. Um, so they wanted the characters too. And, um, you know, frankly, they offered me more money for the rights than I had made on everything I had written up to that point put together. Uh, so I said, of course, I'm, I'm not gonna say, no, you can't make this into a movie. But um, as I've described the book to you, I wrote that book to be a, a book that appeals to a reader's imagination. You you have to you have to get into the book and use your imagination, and you can see what's going on. You know, word balloons and uh, cartoon characters. I didn't think this was a filmable book. I didn't think there was any way in hell that they could ever turn this into a movie. I just didn't. I just didn't think it was possible. And um, you know, at, at least not not the way I visualized the end happening. It, you know. It, they could they could cheap schlock it. They could uh, you know do it quick and dirty. But I didn't think they would ever do it the way that it it ought to be done and the way it had to be done. And for the first couple of years, uh, I was right. They they really they didn't have uh, the, the tech. They didn't have the technology, and, and that wasn't entirely their fault. I mean, the technology just hadn't been developed yet. They uh, they actually developed technology for the Roger Rabbit movie that was used in other movies while the Roger Rabbit movie was being made. And, uh, you know, Industrial Light and Magic hadn't yet invented the technology that allowed them to seamlessly blend live action and animation. It just wasn't there in 1980, 81, 82. So it wasn't entirely their fault, but they really couldn't put it together. And um, uh, one day, Roy Disney came to me and he said, hey, look, we're not having any luck with this live action animation uh, combination. He said, what would you think if instead of animated characters, we had uh, characters dressed in costume like they are at Disneyland? 
and I, I thought to myself, oh, my God, I'm going to get the Disney stable here. I'm going to get Fred McMurray as Eddie Valiant. I'm going to get Haley Mills as Jessica. Uh, I'm going to get uh, Kurt Russell as Baby Herman. And, uh, uh, you know, and I said, don't you think that that compromises the, the concept just a little bit? And everybody said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they went on and kept trying, but they never did try. They, I don't know, maybe they, they never would. But a couple of things happened in 1985. One of them was that Roy Disney got forced out and uh, got replaced by Michael Eisner. Uh, Mike brought with him a guy named Jeffrey Katzenberg. Uh, Mike and Jeff had worked together at the 20th century and they had done a ton of big deal movies, Jaws and you know, really successful movies. Uh, and uh, they came to Disney and they, they threw out every project that Disney had uh, under development because that's what got the previous regime in trouble. Uh, they started their own projects, all except for one. They kept Roger Rabbit because they both realized this was the movie they had to make. They had to make this movie. So uh, they did something that no um, nobody at Disney had ever done up to that point. Instead of producing it themselves internally, they brought in an outside producer. That guy was like Steven Spielberg, wasn't he? Yeah, a little known guy. I mean, I'd never heard of him. They said, hey, this guy Steve Spielberg is coming in. Who the hell is that? Uh, but uh, to show you the difference that Steve Spielberg makes in Hollywood um, in 1983 Roy Disney went to Warner Brothers and uh, said to Warner Brothers hey we're making this live action animated movie and uh, we want to use Bugs Bunny in a cameo we want him to come in say what's up doc crunch a carrot wink and walk off what do you think and, you know, Warner Brothers looked at Roy Disney and said, get lost. Get lost. It's never going to happen. Bugs Bunny is never going to be in a Walt Disney picture. That will never happen. So in 1986, when Steve Spielberg walked into Warner Brothers and made the identical request, hey, we want to use Bugs Bunny in a cameo. Warner Brothers looked at Steve Spielberg and said, of course, of course, you know, take it. What about Pookie Pig? What about Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner? What about... Uh, Yosemite Sam, what about, um, uh, what, take them all, you know, take them all. And so Stephen walked out with all of the Warner Brothers characters. And uh, the only codicil was that Bugs Bunny, being a superstar, had a contract. And his contract specified that he had to be in every scene with Mickey Mouse. Because he was their ace in a hole. Well, yeah, he was a. They were co-equal superstars. Yeah. And you could not have Mickey in a scene without Bugs. And they had to have the exact same number of words of dialogue. So you you, you can go through and see, uh, and you will you will see, you can count up the dialogue words. They speak the exact same number of words. They're in all the scenes together. Um, so uh, Steve Spielberg uh, brought in... Uh, Bob Zemeckis to direct and uh, Bob Zemeckis had and offered this back in 81 and had read the book and liked the book, uh, thought it would make a terrific movie, but really didn't think that Disney had the horsepower back then. And he, of course he was right. But now with Steven on board, um, Bob C said, well, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. So um, 
Rob Zemeckis came on board and um, the first thing he did was uh, we were casting voices and he had worked with Kathleen Turner in Romance of a Stone. And uh, so he said, said to me, you know, what do you think of Kathleen Turner for the voice of Jessica? I said, oh, perfect, you know, perfect voice. So we got her in and she did the voice. And of course, nothing had been drawn yet. We didn't even really know what Jessica was going to look like exactly. Um, and she did the voice. And when it came to the song that Jessica sings in the Inca Pay Club, um, Kathleen couldn't sing it. And, and whether Kathleen just can't sing, I don't know, or whether she was pregnant. She was like seven months pregnant. Whether she couldn't get breath control, I don't know, but she couldn't sing the song. So um, Stephen's wife at the time, Amy Irving, was at the session. And Stephen said to Amy, you know, hey, you sang it. Yenzel, why don't you give it a whack? You sing the song. And I said, Steve, you know, nobody's going to believe that Jessica has one voice when she sings and a totally different voice when uh, when she speaks. She says, oh, it's, it's too far apart. Nobody will nobody even notice. She sings here and she doesn't speak until way later. Nobody will notice. Nobody ever did. But uh, Kathleen, because nobody was sure if this movie was going to be any good. And um, so uh, Kathleen agreed to do it, uh, but would do it without credit. She didn't want screen credit. That way, if the movie was a bomb, if it was another Howard the Duck, um, she would uh, she would just fade into the woodwork and disavow any knowledge, which is what James Earl Jones did with Star Wars when he played Darth Vader. He, uh, he didn't take screen credit because nobody knew if it was going to be any good. So she did the same thing, didn't take screen credit. Then if the movie was a big success, she could come out and say, yeah, mystery woman, I was a voice of Jessica Rabbit, which is what happened. But Amy Irving wasn't that shy. If you read the credits, uh, you will see it, Amy Irving is credited as singing voice of Jessica Rabbit. So, um, so then we had to design what those characters looked like. And um, uh, Stephen wanted an outside animator, uh, a top-notch guy to come in and oversee the Disney staff. And Disney was reluctant at first, but agreed. Uh, and so uh, everybody wanted Chuck Jones, the guy who did Bugs Bunny. Legend in his field. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so we interviewed him and he, he was willing to do it. He wanted to do it. He saw it's, it was be a terrific project, but he was old and frail at the time. I think it was late sixties or maybe early seventies. And uh, everybody got together and, and the, the powers that be decided they wouldn't give him the job because they were really afraid the workload might kill him. And that was the first time I'd, I've ever and only time I've ever seen Hollywood people uh, have any sympathy for the health of any employees. Usually it's a, you know, sit down, work at your job. And if you die at your desk, fine, you know, we'll clean it out and bring in somebody else. But um, they were very considerate of him. So uh, then we took a look at Ralph Bakshi, who had done an animated Fritz the Cat, which was the R-rated uh, animated movie and um, Stephen thought he was a goon um, so oh, we passed on him but I'll, I, I always wonder what he would have done with Jessica uh, had Ralph Bakshi gotten a hold of her uh, so then we, we found the perfect guy who was Dick Williams he was a uh, American living in England an English expat and uh, had won the Academy Award for the Pink Panther animated the Pink Panther and designed the Pink Panther and was the perfect guy. I had the right temperament, 
uh, creative genius, really could pull the animators together, knew how to relate to them. And uh, so he sat down with me and we designed uh, what Jessica Roger, Baby Herman looked like. And uh, for Jessica, because I'm a writer, I mean, you know, I'm not an artist. I had seen them in my mind, but I'd never actually drawn them. So um, for Jessica, uh, we based Jessica on the glamour girls of my youth, Rita Hayworth, uh, Betty Grable, uh, Veronica Lake, Marilyn Monroe, uh, and an animated character called Red Hot Riding Hood, who was uh, uh, drawn by a guy named Tex Avery. And um, if we look at the Red Hot Riding Hood cartoons, which are available on YouTube, uh, Wild and Wolfie and Swing Shift Cinderella, uh, you'll see that, that Jessica and Red Hot are um, maybe sisters, maybe mother-daughter. There's a distinct family resemblance. Uh, red Hot wears a red dress, although it's shorter, has red hair, although it's up in a bun, and has that kind of outlandish figure that Jessica has. Uh, so we, you know, we got Jessica. Um, Roger is pretty much the way I described him in the book. He's uh, got red overalls, uh, polka dot tie. Uh, Dick added that uh, orange top knot because he wanted a little splash of color. And he also changed the rabbit from a brown rabbit in the book to a white rabbit uh, because he said that a white rabbit would pop more uh, in the animation, uh, would pop from the background. And uh, he showed me examples and he, he was right. So it was Roger. Uh, you know, next thing we had to do was find somebody to play Eddie Valiant. And that was the most critical thing because the guy playing Eddie Valiant was the one who would have to convince the audience that the rabbit was real. And if, if that didn't happen, the whole movie was going to fail. So uh, they wanted somebody bankable. They wanted somebody, you know, with a, with a name so that if the movie was terrible, they would at least come in to see the star. Uh, so everybody wanted Harrison Ford and uh, we went to Harrison Ford and he was interested, but when he found out I was going to take four to five years, he said, I can't, I can't do that. So I uh, we went to Paul Newman, uh, same thing. Uh, he said, oh yeah, I, I can't do four to five years. So uh, we interviewed uh, William Peterson, who was a television guy. I think he would have done a good job, but they didn't feel he had a big enough name. Uh, James Woods, uh, Kurt Russell, actually, one of the Disney stable guys. And then we finally found the guy that everybody thought would be the perfect Eddie Valiant. And then, of course, was Bill Murray. Oh, Bill Murray was Eddie Valiant. So we were filming Bill Murray, and um, it became obvious really quickly that Bill Murray was not going to work out because not only could he not convince the audience that that rabbit was real, I don't think he believed it. You know, every time the rabbit came on, he would look at her and say, oh, you're a talking rabbit. What are you doing here? So uh, they, they bought him out of his contract, $1 million, and uh, kept looking. So then we found the next guy that we thought would be the perfect Eddie Valiant. And that, of course, was Eddie Murphy. Uh, we got a black Eddie Valiant. And now suddenly we're rewriting the, uh, the script to make uh, Eddie Valiant funnier than the tunes. And... You know, that obviously isn't going to work either. So they pay they pay Eddie Murphy off uh, with a million dollars and a Ferrari. 
and uh, keep looking. Uh, you know, in the meantime, on the other side of town, um, uh, Brian De Palma is making a movie, The Untouchables. And he really wants Bobby De Niro to play Al Capone, but De Niro has got another movie going and can't do it. So uh, De Palma hires a, a British actor named Bob Hoskins to play Al Capone. And after a couple of weeks of filming, Bobby De Niro calls De Palma and says, hey, I wrapped early. I can be in your movie. So they fire Hoskins. And now Hoskins has got a million dollars and nothing to do. So they said, hey, let's let's bring this Hoskins guy in and see what he can do. And I said, ah, there's no way. I mean, the guy's, he's British and he's not just British, he's Cockney British. And I love Bob Hoskins. I mean, I'd seen every movie he'd ever made along Good Friday and Mona Lisa. And I, I loved him. I thought he was a just brilliant. Just feel like he would fit. Yeah, I, he wouldn't fit because he, he was, first of all, he wasn't what I pictured a Valiant as being, but that's beside the point. I didn't think that he could bring off the accent and, and, and the vocabulary because he's, he's, he's cockney British and he has a really thick British accent. So they brought him in and he did a reading on a bare stage and he did it in perfect American accent not just perfect American, but Los Angeles, private eye, noir private eye accent. He, he was perfect. I had no idea that this guy was, was British. And he was on a bare stage reading his lines. And he was the only actor that we had ever brought in who convinced you that Rabbit was real, that that Rabbit was standing there next to him. Um, so we hired him. And... Um, you know, people ask me if I have any regrets about the movie, if there's anything I regret. And I, I do have, I have one big one, that Bob Hoskins did not even get nominated for an Academy Award for that performance, which I felt was the most incredible performance I have ever seen an actor give in my life. I, there were times he was in an empty, in an empty room, in a, not just a room, in a warehouse, empty warehouse, green screen making up Toontown in his mind and convincing everybody around him that they were there. Um, the guy was just a, a, such a trooper, so talented. And uh, in the scene where he gets thrown out of the Ink and Paint Club, uh, he was on a wire, of course, but they did drop him at the end into the boxes. And when he landed, he landed badly and broke three ribs. Mm -hmm. And... Um, we thought, oh, this is it. You know, the, the we're gonna have to shut down production for a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks, while Bob heals up. He came in the next day, taped up, saying, "Well, ready to go. Let's do my lines." And uh, you know, it just killed me that he did not even get nominated. And I think the reason for that, looking back on it, the reason was he made it look too easy. You know, you watch that movie and it's seamless, and you don't realize that in 80% of the time he's on screen, there's nobody there with him. He doesn't have those cartoons. He's making all those things up in his mind. And, and um, like when he's handcuffed to Roger, those handcuffs are on springs. And so he has to remember uh, not only where his hand is when he moves his hand, he has to remember where Roger's hand is and because he's controlling the movement of Roger's hand, even though there's no Roger there. Well, by the end of the movie, uh, Bob, Bob told me that by the end of the movie, he could see the rabbit. The rabbit was there. The rabbit was real to him. And I met him 
a, a couple of years later when he came to Boston to film Mona Lisa, uh, to film uh, mermaids. And um, I said, hey, Bob, you still see the rabbit? He said, no. He said, it took about a year before it disappeared. And his, his young son was getting jealous because he said, daddy's got this new playmate. And he said, he's an invisible rabbit. <laughs> so, um, um, you know, the movie got made. Um, they had the uh, they had the premiere in Radio City Music Hall, June of 1988. And uh, I got to sit in the... Uh, VIP section. Uh, and, you know, I talk about a small town kid from Illinois. I mean, I, here I am in the VIP section and I'm going to see my movie all the way through for the first time. I'd, I'd seen it shot. I'd seen it filmed. I'd seen it put together, uh, but I'd never seen the whole movie all the way through because they were still working on it up to about a, a month before. And I just had never seen the whole thing. I was going to see my credit on screen for the first time. Um, and I, I was in the VIP section uh, with uh, Kathleen Turner sitting on my left and Amy Irving sitting on my right, two of the most beautiful women I've ever seen in my life. And I'm going to see my movie. I'm going to see my credit. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, life just doesn't get any better than this. And, and by golly, life got better because Kathleen reached over and grabbed my leg and she whispered in my ear, she said, Gary, are you excited? And I said, Kathleen, you have no idea. I have no idea. So, uh, you know, the movie came out, was the best reviewed movie of 1988 on all the critics' number one list, uh, made $780 million that year, and continues to make money as well over a billion dollars now. And um, uh, it was a critical and financial success. The, the movie was just put into the Smithsonian's uh, I don't know, treasured classics or something. I, I don't know, with Gone with the Wind. And, you know, it'll be preserved forever uh, by the Smithsonian. Um, the, uh, I wrote a sequel novel. And uh, for the sequel novel, we had 10 publishers bidding for the rights to print the sequel novel. All 10 of those publishers had rejected the first one once. Five of them had rejected the first one twice. And Two of them had rejected the first one three times. So um worked out pretty well for me. Yeah. Well, two questions based on that answer there. And uh -huh. I'm thinking about it. Well, obviously, the technology got to the point where they can make the movie and all that stuff, which you were talking about uh -huh. compared to the early 80s. But uh -huh. when you said, okay, let's go ahead and do the movie, I... I'm not the IRS. I'm not any of that. But I'm curious to know, did you outright sell Roger and the book and everything? Or did you just say, hey, no. this is a licensing deal. You keep the rights to your characters and such. Yes. <laughs> Short answer, yes. I sold the book. I sold the rights to the book. Um, I still have, I still own, own the characters. Uh, I can still write books with the characters in them. Um, I, which I've done. I wrote uh, Who P -P Plugged Roger Rabbit, the sequel. I wrote uh, Who Whacked Roger Rabbit a couple of years ago, which is the third in the in the series. I just finished uh, Jessica Rabbit Serious Business, which is a uh, origin story about Jessica Rabbit. It talks about where Jessica, uh, she, how she uh, went from a poor shop girl named Jessica Krupnik to 
becoming Chessinger Rabbit. It talks about how she met Roger, where tunes come from, how Toontown came to be. And I can do that. Um, I can I can write short stories. I've written tons of short stories with Roger and Jessica. Um, Disney and Spielberg own what the characters look like because they were the ones who created them and conceived them. So I can who plug Roger Rabbit. I used Roger and Jessica on the cover, and I had to go to Disney and Spielberg and get permission to do that, which you know they're, they're certainly willing to do. Uh, I've written articles. I wrote an article for Vet Magazine because uh, I, uh, my wife uh, bought me a 1959 Corvette for our 20th anniversary. Um, and I got her a box of candy, right? And uh, so I, I restored that uh, that car to factory mint condition. And I wrote an article, a series of articles for, for Vet Magazine called Roger Rabbit Buys a Corvette. And uh, in each installment, uh, Roger is sitting in the Corvette or on the Corvette or watching the Corvette or something. And, uh, you know, Disney did the artwork for that. So, you know, they're forthcoming about letting me use the artwork when I want to. Um, there are certain things I can't do. I can't make a movie uh, because Disney owns the movie rights. I can't do a stage play because they, they own a stage play. I, actually, I can't do a comic book because they own the comic book rights. Anything that visualizes the character, I can't do. But anything that is is in written form, yeah, fine. But it's good to hear that there's a working relationship there. Yeah. But, but there's two other stories I wanted to touch base on. Mm -hmm. And you kind of hinted at it with the, during the Q&A a couple weeks ago. And first one being... When they were designing Jessica, that you may have gotten a physical model from a strip club to do yeah. what they call rotoscope to use a real female to draw. No, not, no, 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 no. Two different things. Okay. Two different things. Rotoscoping is when you uh, Cinderella dancing. Uh, um, when Cinderella is dancing with the prince. All right. Uh, that was rotoscope. They got two live actors, uh, actor and one male, one female, and they filmed them dancing. Then they put that film on a table and they trace over it and animate it. So those are actually real people that have been traced over. All right. What we did with Jessica, the, the animators could not get the motion of a woman uh, of Jessica's proportions walking, uh, how how her breasts move, uh, you know, because they, they just, they, that wasn't their bag. They, they animated ducks and chickens and mice and geese. So uh, we went down to the strip club in, 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 in London where we were filming and I hired a stripper and she walked down the runway uh, wearing Jessica's red dress uh, then she walked down again wearing brown panties. Then she walked down again naked. That wasn't done so they could draw over her. No, they didn't do that because her proportions, although she was magnificent, <laughs> were nowhere near Jessica's. That was done so that the animators could watch that film and get an idea of how a woman's body moved when she walked. Um, that was one of the reasons why Jessica's shape is so outlandish because 
Dick Williams, the lead animator, wanted to make sure that other animators, non-Disney animators, realized that Jessica was not rotoscoped, that she was completely drawn. There was no rotoscoping with her. And there's nothing wrong with rotoscoping, perfectly acceptable animation technique, but used only for real people with real proportions. Like you wouldn't use it for a rabbit or a duck or a mouse or a Jessica because she has to be drawn. Perfect. The other story that you kind of alluded to a little bit during the Q&A was the train story with the... Oh, yeah. And, and, and then lead to... Led to you this is crazy train radio. You got to tell the crane story, right? Yeah, the train. Yeah, exactly. It was the train story, which led you to talking about Betty Boop. And there was a spot in the movie. And sure. So yeah, go ahead. Sure. sure. Uh, there's a technique in animation. And it's called gags in the margins. And it's something animators use to amuse themselves. The film goes through a camera at 24 frames a second. And uh, animators learned very early on that they could screw around with six of those 24 frames. Now that's six 24ths of a second, which is quicker than that. And the, the human eye can't pick it up, but the animators know it's there. And it's just a little visual gag and they do it to amuse themselves. It's been going on forever. Uh, in, uh, in all the Betty Boop cartoons, whenever Betty Boop says, boop, boop, doop, the front of her dress falls down. Exposes her breasts, she picks up the dress and puts it back six frames, right? Nobody ever saw that except the projectionist in the movie theaters who would go through and look at the films and find those six frames and sometimes cut them out and, and keep them. Um, so the, the animators for the Betty Boop scene wanted to have an homage to uh, Fleischer, the, the guy who did Betty Boop, Max Fleischer. And so they animated the scene when Betty says to Eddie, I still got it, and I, Eddie, boop, boop, doop in front of her dress falls down. Um, so they, they said, hey, can we put it in the movie? I said, oh, Jesus, that's way above my pay grade. I said, you got to go to Stephen for that. And they said, well, can you go? He likes you. And I said, well, okay. So I went to Stephen. I said, I told the story about how this is kind of a tradition in animation. and uh, It's kind of funny, and the animators get a big kick out of it. Nobody would ever see it because it was you know, impossible to see with the human eye. And I showed it to him and he thought it was hilarious. So he said, yeah, you can put it in the movie. So I went back and told the animators, okay, the Betty Boop scene is in the movie. And they said, okay, can we do more? Oh, Jesus. So I went back and I asked Stephen and he said, yeah, they can do more, but nothing X-rated, nothing even R-rated. You know, it's got to be PG-13, nothing worse than that, even though you can't see it. Nothing worse than that. So the whole movie is just filled with little gags like that. And um, uh, when Eddie is in the, um, the bathroom in Toontown and he looks down, and there's no floor. If you freeze frame that, uh, you can see on the wall behind him, it says, for a good time, call Alice in Wonderland. And originally they had put Michael Eisner's home phone number up there, but uh, somebody from Disney did spot that one and made them take off his home phone number and they replaced it with uh, the best is yet to come or something like that. I can't remember. Um, but uh, there's also a scene where uh, Jessica and Eddie uh, are in Benny the Cab and they're coming out of Toontown. And as they're coming out of Toontown, 
uh, they hit the dip and they hit the light pole and they go flying. And, uh, you know, if you freeze frame that, you can see that Eddie Valiant is clearly a dummy. It's not, not, not really Bob Oscars is a dummy. And um, Jessica does this beautiful somersault in the air and uh, her dress flows out, her hair flows out to match. And as she's upside down at the apex of her kind of aerial somersault, her legs open up and she has no underwear. Well, not that she needs any. It's like looking at your Barbie doll, right? But um, she has no underwear. And, um, you know, this was all well and good. Nobody was ever going to see this um, un until, because um, Stephen was pretty adamant he wasn't going to release Roger Rabbit on video or, or E.T. But then he finally released E.T. and made a ton of money. And he says, all right, we're going to release Roger Rabbit. So they released Roger Rabbit on video and Frank Marshall, who was the line producer, went on one of the late night talk shows, I think uh, Jay Leno, and told the Betty Boop story. And Disney freaked. And oh my God, we've got a topless woman in a PG-13 movie. So they went, they went and called back all of those video cassettes, which had already been made. They took that scene out and remade the cassettes, but they didn't change any of the others. So the Jessica bottomless scene is still in the movie. And um, so people started playing it like a video game and going through scene by scene. And it was hard with a VHS, but when it finally got to Laserdisc and eventually a DVD, you could go through frame by frame and you could look at every single frame and see. And uh, people made lists of all of the, what they call gags in the margins. And um, one of the funniest I think is at the end when the, 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 the steamroller thing goes through the, the wall and you see Toontown on the other side of the wall and the train goes through and you talk about your crazy train. If you look at that train and the train goes by that fast, I mean, you, you, it's a train. If you freeze frame it and look at it frame by frame, you will see that at every window of that train, there is somebody being murdered. <laughs> like there's people being shot, there are people being hung, there are people being hit with an axe. Every single window has somebody being murdered. And it, it's just, it's funny. And it's just one of the things that animators do to amuse themselves. Yeah, you got to entertain yourself somehow. Absolutely. Well, obviously, the website is GaryWolf.com, but is there anything coming up? that you are working on, whether it be a new book or something along those lines that you might want folks to know about? Uh, well, I've got a bunch of, I've got a bunch of stuff, but you know, I mean, you're going to have to have me back because uh, I've got a huge new project coming up. Uh, Roger Rabbit kind of thing, live action animation. Uh, but I can't tell you what it is because I, it hasn't been announced yet. And, I can't be the one to announce it. It's got to be the studio or the producer, but it's it's going to be huge and it's going to be funny. Um, I'm working on a uh, an anthology of Roger Rabbit short stories. Uh, all of the short stories are being done by A-list writers. They've all had uh, books on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, and uh, I, like I say, you, you want to see my new Jessica Rabbit novel because that talks about where Jessica came from and how tunes came to be. And, you know, in the, in the beginning, I'll give you a little spoiler here, but uh, 
Jessica's human. She's not a tune. So it talks about uh, how she gets the way she is now. And um, right now, the project that I'm working on, because I'm basically a writer. I'm not a movie guy. I, I just get involved with movies uh, because I get drawn into it. You know, I keep getting away and they keep drawing me back. But right now, uh, I'm doing a new Roger Eddy uh, Toontown novel like Who Censored Roger Rabbit, Who Whacked, Who Plugged. Um, and it's it's gritty. It's, uh, it's, it's got my noir mystery in it. And it's got a whole new category of tune that I just came up with that I hadn't thought about before. Uh, that I'm kind of fascinated with. Uh, that's probably maybe two years out. It takes me that long to write them anymore. So, uh, you know, a lot of stuff in the pipeline, but, um, you know, the, 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 big, the next big one will be the, will be the movie. Yeah. Right on. Well, Gary Wolf, thank you so much for the time. No, oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. And one, one last story. Give okay, one go last, for it. Uh, one last story. Uh, when... When Stephen was making the movie, um, he wanted to make sure that everybody in the movie who was involved in a in a major way had his or her favorite character, cartoon character in the movie. So uh, Hoskins was Heckle and Jekyll. Uh, Bob Bob Sees was uh, the Roadrunner Wiley Coyote. Uh, Dick Williams was uh, Droopy. So Steve went out and got all those characters specifically. He made sure he got all those characters. And so he came to me and he said, Gary, you know, who's your favorite character? Who do you want in the movie? And I said, ah, Steve, you know, I got Roger, I got Jessica, I got Baby Herman, I got Eddie Valiant. I think I'm covered. He says, ah, we'll do something for you. So, you know, don't worry about it. So if you if you go to the movie and you watch it on DVD where you can freeze frame it, and when Eddie Valiant goes into Toontown and the curtains lift and there's bluebirds and there's, you know, the people are singing and, and it's just everything's all happiness. You've got to look quick because it's only six twenty-fourths of a second. But if you look to the left, you're going to see a red barn. You're going to see a yellow farmhouse. You're going to see a, a brown fence. You're going to see a green meadow and you're going to see a blue cow sitting all alone out in the middle of a field. <laughs> Talk about coming full circle. Absolutely. Gary, thank you so much for the time. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thinking your day is bad and really looking to make it worse? 
Why not try downloading this new classic set of music that will be dropping so far off the charts, there's bound to be injuries. <laughs> now that's what I call depressing. It's gonna make those who are even close to having the slightest glimmer of hope wanna jump off the highest of planks. For those that are getting Now That's What I Call Depressing, you'll be getting that song that reminds you of that relationship with those cougars, Wrinkled Ladies. For those who weren't really into cougars, but those who had that special friend while Sincel Black 2B, we got for you this clusterfuck that will put you in therapy for years to come. With cheeks wide open. <laughs> Who the fuck writes this shit? Oh hell, we're still recording this commercial. Always with you, it cannot be done. Those that rather have it out than in. This loaded hit will be dropping soon. Farthing in the USA. For those who place their order by calling or ordering online, the next hundred folks will receive their choice of either a noose of good quality that won't snap, an installation of a new outlet next to your bathtub so you can now blow dry your hair in a full tub. Or the choice of the right gang to just beat the fuck out of you. Call us today at 1-800-FUCK-THIS. Hey, this is April Hunter, and you are listening to Crazy Train Radio. Woo-woo!